Perspectives on Public Interest, the podcast. I'm Emily Sutcliffe, Director of Social Justice Programs at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Today, I have the extreme honor of speaking with Sherilyn Eiffel. Sherilyn is President and Director Counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, often referred to as the LDF. In addition to her work with the LDF, Sherilyn is a critically acclaimed author. Her book, On the Courthouse Lawn, Confronting the Legacy of Lynching in the 21st Century, reflects her lifelong engagement in and analysis of issues of race and American public life. Sherilyn has taught extensively at the University of Maryland School of Law and is a renowned litigator. Among her successful litigation was the landmark Voting Rights Act case, Houston Lawyers Association versus Attorney General of Texas, in which the Supreme Court held that judicial elections are covered by the provisions of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Sherilyn, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So you're joining us as our honorary fellow during our annual Public Interest Week. We couldn't be more thrilled to have you here. Um, Our theme this year is justice for all. What does a society or even a world that fosters justice for all look like to you? In what ways do you see this principle alive in certain parts of American society? Uh, In what ways is it absent? That's a great question in that it's almost a question that you have to ask yourself as a way of stoking and making sure that your dream of the world that you want to exist is still alive. I don't think there is justice for all anywhere in the world, but it's an aspiration. And that's really critical to being a civil rights lawyer, I think, is to have this intense aspiration, to have this intense belief in what the world can and should be, and to work towards that end, you know, even if you haven't seen it someplace else, the tradition of you know, the pioneering civil rights lawyers who served and and were trained under Charles Hamilton Houston in the early 20th century, Thurgood Marshall and Jim Nabrit and uh, and then the early LDF lawyers, the Jack Greenberg and Constance Baker Motley and Robert Carter. All of these individuals were working to create an America that didn't exist. So it's very important that we keep, you know, a North Star for ourselves as we do this work. You know, justice is episodic often. You know, I'm, I'm not sure that I would feel comfortable saying this is a place where there is justice for all, you know, because there might be justice for, for all today, but it might be different tomorrow. It really depends on the circumstance and the moment that you're in. What I do know is that there is a constant wave and push and commitment of many people in the legal profession and outside the legal profession to make our justice system just. And that it is one of the most critically important projects of democracy, which is how I think about the work that I do. I don't think about it in narrow terms. I think about it in broad and fairly soaring terms. I do think we are doing the work of of democracy building. That commitment, the commitment that that those of us who do this work have is to is to to shape our democracy in ways in which the, the notion of equal justice, the notion not just of, of, of equal justice, but of just justice, you know, is central to the vision of what the world we want to live in looks like, that people feel that they will be treated fairly by a system of laws upon which we have consensus, and that those laws carry with them elements of, of compassion as well as, you know, rationality and practicality, coherence, and so forth, but that we express 
our values through our laws. And then we further express our values by how we apply those laws and how those laws show up in the lives of, of, of average people. And the lives of marginalized people are the lives in which we can see whether our justice system is really just. So building off of this concept of pursuing a justice system that's just, can you share with us some of the most pressing issues that LDF is working on right now? It's hard to create a hierarchy. It's like talking about, you know, your children um, <laughs> because they're so they're all so important. You know, I think one of the issues that many uh, in the country fortunately have turned their attention to is the issue of voter suppression. I was a young voting rights lawyer at LDF from 1988 to 1993, so this is not a new issue for us. Thurgood Marshall successfully challenged the all-white Democratic primary in the United States Supreme Court in 1944. That's 20 years before the Voting Rights Act was enacted. So so I do, I do think it's important for people to understand the long trajectory of this effort to ensure that African Americans and other racial minorities have full access to the ballot, but most of most of all have full opportunity to express themselves in the political process. This is vitally important, I think, because the whole idea of voting rights was not just that it was a symbolic gesture, that it's true that civil rights activists in the 1960s understood the symbolic importance of being able to walk up and cast that ballot, you know, without being beaten by the local sheriff, without having to pay a poll tax, without having to answer, you know, some understanding clause, without having to prove that your grandfather could vote in 1850. There is something really powerful about the citizenship statement that uh, is expressed when you're able to do that free from re restriction. But on a very fundamental level, the, the right to vote and the ability to participate equally in the political process is about controlling the destiny of your community your family, and yourself, and our country. And so it's among the most important things. And we do a lot of work challenging voter suppression. We challenged Texas's voter ID law. That was the law that uh, was passed right after the Supreme Court's decision in Shelby County versus Holder. And the law essentially pr required uh, voters in Texas to have a government-issued photo ID of a certain kind and eliminated uh, the identification that had been used in the past, including the ID that was held by our clients, who were students at Prairie View A&M, uh, historically black college in, in Texas. And they were able to use in the past their, uh, it's a state university, their state university ID as a, as a uh, valid ID to vote. Uh, that was outlawed. Tribal ID, if you belong to a Native American tribe, was outlawed as uh, sufficient to vote. Uh, various employment, government employment IDs were also deemed insufficient. But if you had a concealed gun carry permit, that was regarded as valid, a valid form of identification to vote. So it was the most stringent voter ID law in the country, and we won that case at trial. At trial, the trial judge uh, found that the law was enacted for the purpose of discriminating against African-American and Latino voters. We're currently in the midst of a challenge to Alabama's voter ID law, and we do a lot of challenges in local elections around the country, too, because we think that local power is really important. We're also really, obviously, interested in criminal justice reform and criminal justice matters. We've been engaged with that for a long time. We've been really at the forefront of death penalty litigation for many decades, and it was LDF that uh, litigated the case in which there was a moratorium on the death penalty for a very brief period in this country. And we won a case, a death penalty case in the United States Supreme Court two years ago. Our death penalty cases focus on the role of race and racism in the imposition of the death penalty as a way of 
demonstrating its arbitrariness and, uh, in our view, unconstitutional nature. But we also care about other aspects of the criminal justice system as well. We have a policing reform campaign, and we've been very deeply involved and engaged in the issue of police killings of unarmed African-Americans and unconstitutional policing in a variety of places. We work intensely in Baltimore, Ferguson, North Charleston, North Charleston, New York. Um, we're doing some work in Tulsa also and just spent some time reviewing the Chicago police consent decree. We care deeply about this issue, the ability to be free from the state, officers of the state, killing you without reason goes to the very heart of a democracy, goes to the very heart of, of citizenship. And here when I say citizenship, I don't mean whether you are documented or undocumented. I mean part of the citizenry, part of the family of people within a country or jurisdiction. So we think this is you know, vitally important. And every, every place where racism shows up in the criminal justice system matters to us because that renders the system illegitimate. So we, we think of, of that as really important. But we also do a lot of education work and we do work around economic justice. It, we care a lot about housing discrimination and the ability of people to take care of their families. Our employment discrimination work has been focused recently almost entirely on the misuse of criminal backgrounds checks to deny employment. We settled a big case with Target this year, which was a big deal, and the Washington metro system, especially given the reach of the criminal justice system in our country and its application in the lives of African-Americans. The misuse of criminal backgrounds checks, that is using them as an as a absolute bar to employment, essentially has the holds out the possibility of creating a kind of unemployable class of people in our country. And so we're working very hard on challenging on the, mis the misuse of those, of those background checks as well. A lot of important work that you're doing and so much to be done. Kind of woven within a lot of what you were saying, particularly your comments about um, citizenry. Yeah. There's a sense that so many people are now applying an increasingly narrowing idea and conceptualization of what it is to be a citizen in this family, who gets to be in the family, who is fully human in the family. And so building off of that, Phoebe Haddon, who is now the chancellor at Rutgers Law School and previously worked with you as the dean at Maryland, she said about you, Sherilyn values dignity. She is very strident about making sure that everyone gets the kind of respect they are entitled to. So what role have principles of dignity and respect played in the way that you have taken on your legal career and how you utilize the law and think the law should be utilized? That's a great question. I'm, I'm, I thank Phoebe for that <laughs> lovely remark. I actually care about this a great deal. You know, it's, it's shown up, actually, interestingly, in a lot of Supreme Court decisions over the past 10 years, although you know, it's capable of, of being used for any purposes. But it's one of the things that Justice Kennedy talked about quite a bit in cases involving rights of the LGBTQ community and the, and the question of dignity, which I think is really important and, and, you know, trying to interrogate kind of what that means. But I think that this is what people want, ultimately. Maybe it's even more powerful than you know, the notions of equality, justice, and all the things that animate those of us who are civil rights lawyers, dignity is lies at the heart of it. And when you have the kind of practice that we've had, you know, when I was a young LDF lawyer, I think the first week I was on the job, the then director counsel, Julius Chambers, who's one of the most extraordinary civil rights lawyers in our country in the 20th century, he um, was from North Carolina and um, became the third director counsel of the Legal Defense Fund, but he litigated some of the most important desegregation cases and had his house firebombed and his office firebombed and his car firebombed and he was unflappable, very humble. And um, I remember when I would um, 
I would go to, to his office, to Julius's office with, you know, some idea I had for a case I wanted to file. And he would listen to me and I'm as young and bright and enthusiastic about whatever my idea was. And he would listen and then he would say, and what do your clients say? And that was Julius's way of making sure that as a civil rights lawyer, you don't let yourself overrun why we do what we do. It's about our clients. And traveling to meet my, my what, who, the people who became my clients, you know, in, in the South in those early days and, and continuing to do so, you were, for, for me and I think for every LDF lawyer, we're always struck by the extraordinary dignity of our clients, whatever walk of life they come from. Just an incredible amount of poise, especially our clients who have lived in some of the, some of the places where racism is most rampant, the way in which people carve out a life for themselves and carve out a place of dignity. When I used to first litigate in this area, you know, all, all the meetings I would have in the African-American community in, you know, in, in southern towns, I can remember in the Arkansas Delta, they were always in the church or in the funeral parlor, you know, places where African-Americans felt they had their own space, you know, and, and they were they were not beholden to anyone. But what that means to 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 forge spaces and a life for yourself in which you're the reflection is who you know you are, as opposed to how you are seen by the larger society is to me the most moving and courageous project of African-Americans for the entire 20th century and now into the 21st century. The belief that the, the insistence upon creating a world in which you see yourself and you see those around you in a way that is um, that is elevated. You know, uh, it's 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 you know, it's it's Sunday morning and, and what people look like going into the church, you know, no matter what they are doing during the week. You know, it's it's meticulous, you know, the the, the, the clothes and the the you know, if, if you're an usher, the white gloves and um uh, there, people want to live lives of dignity. And if that's not something that you're, you understand as you're pursuing this work, you know, you may have the statute, you may have the arguments, you may have everything down pat. So that means your client wants to hear their name. They don't want to disappear into the litigation that you bring. They want to be present and you should find ways to make your client be present in the litigation. Um, I'm always struck by this at oral arguments in the Supreme Court. You know, who who mentions their client, who finds a way to mention their client and who doesn't? I always insisted that my clients would come not only to trial, but to oral arguments. And we still, this is still true today at the Legal Defense Fund. We just had an oral argument in the 11th Circuit in um, on, on our challenge to Alabama's voter ID law. And, you know, we always have the big, the big photographs of the, all the clients, you know, with the lawyers outside the courthouse. We want them to come and hear us. We want them to be present. This is, you know, this is not us just going through the motions or doing legal work. We want to keep those who have to live with the consequences of our our legal decision making and our um, legal briefs and presentation. We want them close and we want them, we want that pressure, you know, from them because it's about their lives and their dignity. So this interview is taking place in the wake of Dr. Ford's testimony. Um, I know that the LDF um, has a very involved and detailed process for vetting Supreme Court nominees. But recently, um, you said that you felt like Dr. Ford's testimony was game-changing in some ways, similar to Anita Hill's testimony. Could you speak a little bit more about um, kind of how you saw that as a pivotal moment? You're quite right that we do a, a pretty deep dive um, when a Supreme Court justice is nominated 
We fully review their available record, read all their opinions if they're a judge, read all their writings, scholarship, speeches, and, you know, learn everything about them that we can. And we release a report about their civil rights record. And we did that, I want to say, on August 30th for Judge Kavanaugh. It was a 97-page report, um, which you can find on our website, www.naacpldf.org. And we opposed his his confirmation because we believed that his record demonstrated and demonstrates that he is likely to be, you know, a deciding vote in um, undermining core civil rights principles and doctrine that, that are vital to the communities of people that we represent. And, you know, there were a, a variety of other concerns about his record as well, which were worn out, I think, in the hearings around some of the testimony that he gave in 2006 when he was seeking to be on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. We didn't know anything about Dr. Ford's allegations, and it was game-changing because there are moments when, as Americans, we get to see together what some of us see all the time, but others don't. And when we have those moments, they're game-changing moments for our country. It's not just about the Supreme Court hearing. It's about people in our country becoming aware of something that many people know about and that many people don't know about and some people don't want to know. And those are the most powerful public moments in our country. And Dr. Ford's testimony was one of those. And so I think that whatever happens with this confirmation and that when, by the time this podcast airs, there will be a decision one way or another, we can't unhear what we heard. We can't forget what we felt when we heard it. And we really do have to keep alive and keep going what should have happened in our in our national spirit <laughs> as a result of what we heard that day from Dr. Ford and also from Judge Kavanaugh. Because that presentation of anger, that almost incoherent expression of anger, is also something that some people know about and other people don't. So I think it's going to be up to us as a country to think through what we do with this. This is not just about personalities. This is about the reality of, of, of life in our country, that sexual assault is real. The consequences of it are real. I was struck by something Dr. Ford said in an interview before her testimony. She said, uh, you know, she put this incident away in her, in her mind, and she described in her testimony, of course, how it kind of came back to the fore. But she said she realized uh, upon reflection that this incident that happened derailed her for, she said, four or five years. And I can tell you even now, you know, this is maybe 10 days since I read that, it's the thing that stays with me the most because at the, as a, we have to ask ourselves the question, do we care about four or five years in the life of a girl? Because I know lots of girls who've been in that same circumstance and who have been similarly derailed. So she's, you know, she's Dr. Ford now. She's an accomplished, very impressive woman, wife, mother. It still matters that she was derailed for four or five years. So I think when we even put aside for a second the actual, you know, confirmation process, <laughs> that's why it's game changing, because there are it raises questions for us. It holds up a mirror. And it's interesting. That's to me what the work of civil rights activists and lawyers do. Also, we're always holding up a mirror to the country and making the country confront something they don't want to see. Think about all of the incidents of police killings of unarmed African-Americans, an issue that many of us have been working on for a long time, for decades even. Seeing Eric Garner killed on television in 2014, killed in New York, 
for some people, that may be the first time they saw someone killed, seeing Walter Scott running in that park and shot in the back. So people may say, you know, well, where is police reform? Is it going to happen? You can't, we can't unsee what we've seen, though. And so there is a kind of built-in accountability that happens at these moments when we are compelled to confront ourselves and we're compelled to confront the worst of us. There, there are great things about this country, but there are some very serious problems, too, that have to be confronted. So that's what I mean when I say it was game-changing. You know, it's potentially game-changing for the confirmation of Judge Kavanaugh. I think it's also game-changing for how we think about who are the elite people in our profession who who follow a pathway that they believe rightfully should end at the Supreme Court, about how we silence girls, about how we treat people who have been victims of sexual assault, about, about how we judge credibility when it's someone who's white and accomplished and how the credibility of my clients is judged. There's a lot, there's a lot there. So that's what I mean. And I think we're only beginning to unpack it. It's not going to be unpacked in short order and certainly not simply by a vote of the United States Senate. In other interviews, you've talked about your parents coming from Panama, your mother's death when you were very young, uh, being the youngest of a big group of siblings growing up in Queens. How has your personal story shaped the ways that you inhabit your roles as a litigator, as a law professor, and as a national leader with LDF? Well, I think we're all shaped by our experiences. I, I certainly think I uh, am shaped by them. So, some of them are, fam you know, family experiences. First of all, you're from a big family. So I like people <laughs> a lot. Uh, my parents were extraordinary. You know, this is, again, about having a vision for something that you haven't seen. And I think that's true of most immigrants. They're the, they're the people who are willing to take the chance, are brave enough to take the chance to create something that they can't possibly be sure uh, will come to, to fruition and often at great personal cost. So that's, you know, obviously very shaping for me. But it's also true that I grew up at a time when my, the life of my family was possible, and I'm not sure it's possible in the same way now. And that does concern me deeply and shape how I think a lot about where America is and where we're headed. In the time that I went to school, you know, uh, this is in the North and, you know, busing was just happening. I actually went to very integrated schools, K through 12 in New York City. I was bused to school. First grade class, I was the only black girl. There was one black girl and one black boy. And then it began to pick up. By the time I was in high school, that was the most integrated place I'd ever, uh, to this day, have ever been. I think it's rare in this country, but there was a period of pretty intense school integration in the North that occurred in the 1970s, kind of peaked in, this, in the late 70s and then began to decline in the early 80s. And I think there's a story for those of us who came through that period that hasn't yet been written that, you know, we were shaped by that. But what was most important is that we did not have money and we <laughs> there were 10 kids and two parents and we could make it. And we could make it because there was a kind of very strong investment in public life. And public life at that time was not demonized in the way it is today. And if there's one phenomenon that's happened in America, it's the demonization of everything that is public. And it has been demonized in a way that has justified the starving of public life. 
I spent every Saturday at the Baisley Park Branch Library. That's the only place my parents would let us go. I took out 10 books on Saturday, brought them back on Saturday, took out another 10 books. We took public transportation, you know, all over the place. The public school was good. We didn't go away on vacations, but every Labor Day and Memorial Day and Fourth of July, we packed up food and we went to Heckscher State Park and Sunken Meadow Park and Wildwood State Park. There was just a way you could, you could live. I don't think that a family with 10 kids could live the way, could live in that way, could strive. You know, my sister and brother who went to City College, um, I remember that the tuition was $85 a semester. And I can remember, you know, it was never paid on time and it was like a big deal, you know, to try to pay the $85, you know, but it was $85. And, uh, you know, and then it was like you couldn't get your books because you didn't have any money, you know, but they could they could they could try to do it. You know, my brother, who, you know, largely as a result of the work of organizations like LDF, could get into the local three electrical union, you know, and at the time we really pushed to desegregate many of the unions. And, um, and my father, who worked very hard on that as well to get him into the union. But, you know, my brother was a, you know, a member of, a, of a, an important union and worked as an electrician his whole life, worked at Ground Zero after after 9-11. It was my brother who signed the promissory note for my student loan when I got into Vassar College because he had a house that he was able to buy because he'd had that great union job. And so that's how it was done. You know, it was like there was all this public support that allowed us to support each other and that allowed you know, us to then have a family that has a doctor and a lawyer and four nurses and a teacher with a doctorate and, you know, all of that stuff came out of the way in which we could live that kind of life. And I don't, and, and we have starved every one of those areas that I've just described in ways that I think make that kind of life very difficult. So that's the most shaping part of it for me, that it's not about the people. So now, now what we do is we demonize the people as though they're not good enough and they're not working hard enough and they're not ambitious enough when I know that not to be true, when I know that it is the apparatus that has to be there to support people who are trying to make it, whether they are immigrants or non-immigrants. And when I was younger, there was more of that support. Now, today, everything that is private is deemed to be better than that which is public. So everybody wants to go to private school and you'd rather sit in your private car than be on public transportation. If I say the words public housing, what, what, what population does it make you think of? And that's the, the, the trick here is that the word public was racialized and that allowed it to become something to be denigrated. Through all of this, I can't help but think of courage. What role do you see courage playing in as you so perfectly put it, kind of the fight to help justice to be just. And where have you seen, you know, courage in your career? I don't think of myself as courageous at all. I do think that because I dreamed of being a civil rights lawyer from the time I was a girl. So this is, I'm literally living the dream. I'm, I'm not doing anything except the thing that I know I was called to do and that I wanted to do. So I'm not making a sacrifice in any way <laughs> because I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pinching myself at all times that this is happening, you know. So I don't, so leaving myself aside, though, I think that I see courage very differently. I think, I, you know, I know people talk about heroes and I just, you know, I see women standing at the bus stop in Baltimore, you know, in their nursing smock when it's still dark out and 
you know, and they're counting on their kids being able to get to school, even though they're not there because they have to go work. I just, you know, the courage of just living that kind of life and waking up every day and putting both feet on the floor and, and getting out there. And even if you are not paid well, working incredibly, you know, hard and working long hours and insisting that your kids, you know, are uh, go to school and are dressed properly and <laughs> making whatever's in your cupboard into a dinner, finding ways to find joy uh, in a very modest life, knowing who you are, despite all of the effort that's put into telling you who you are in this country. You know, we're just a million messages coming at you all the time about who you are, what you should believe, what you think, uh, where you should be, what you should hope for, what you should wear, where you should live. And I think that every day people make decisions about who they want to be in spite of all of those relentless, unending messages that are coming at them. So I think increasingly to be an individual of principle is a very courageous thing to decide that you want to be who you are, that you want to be unusual, that you don't mind being unusual, that you don't mind being compassionate. I think it's very courageous. I think having the courage to to be compassionate is one of the things I hope will, <laughs> it will increase in this country. And that means, you know, even with people you disagree with, because, you know, there are people I vehemently disagree with about a range of issues that I think are deeply moral issues and issues of justice. And even to them, I feel some measure of compassion. I think there are people who are deeply broken and can't be reached, but I do think that there are also people who are deeply broken and can be reached. You know, I, th I think the, the courage we need at this moment is, 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 is that courage. It's, it's much less, it's not, it's not the military parade <laughs> that the president seems to want so badly that celebrates, you know, whatever. Yes, of course, people who face war and who, are, who, who face death on the front line, that, that takes courage, to, courage beyond my imagining. But it also takes courage to wake up every day in extremely constrained circumstances and believe that you can create a life of dignity and joy for your family. It takes courage to send your kids out every day, even though you know there's gunfire on the streets. It takes courage to work that job late at night, even though you know you got to walk across that parking lot or get on that bus late at night to get home and you don't know what could happen to you. It takes courage to go back to school as a as a grown up, you know, many years out and, and try to uh, improve your life and your chances or to go for that job that you feel is out of your reach. All of those things take courage. We, sh we should spend time thinking about about that kind of courage too. the courage, you know, of a mom or a dad or courage of people who, um, you know, who are out. I love sports. And so I love, you know, I love to see people who are out with kids and and sometimes these are people who, you know, they work hard, they're exhausted, but, you know, they're, they're really making a decision to blow through all the noise. For our last question, in a recent speech at Penn, Catherine McKinnon was asked about hope. And her response was something along the lines of, I don't do hope. I do over my dead body. <laughs> <laughs> Amidst what can feel like an increasingly terrifying time, really. What keeps you going? And do you do hope? Oh, that's a good one. I don't know if I would describe it that way. I mean, I, I, uh, I'm kind of like permanently leaned in at all times. So it, there's not a time, time where I'm checking out. That's not happening. I'm actually always undergirded by the past. And that's the, you know, the important part of uh, leading an organization like the one I 
lead, you know, because the work that uh, the early LDF attorneys were doing, they did at a time that was, you know, they, there was no blueprint for what they did. They, they kind of made it up. There was nothing around them that said, well, this is, yes, of course, this is what's going to happen. You know, we think back Brown versus Board of Education like it was inevitable. It was not. I don't think that we get our fuel from what we see in front of us. You know, we get our fuel from something that's underneath us or behind us, pushing us. And for me, I'm very connected to that idea about the people who came before me in my work, the people who came before me in my family, the extraordinary vision of those people. They may have been irrational visions, you know, at the time. But that kind of determination is the determination that I feel is in my bones and definitely is in the bones of LDF. And so I'm, you know, that's what I'm that's what I'm pushed by. It's not something like amorphous, you know, so it's it's that it's that underpinning and being able to see what was done before me. I'm also a person of faith. That is true. I do believe there is a moral order to the universe. <laughs> you know, I believe there are real things like truth, that that's a thing that's real, that there is humanity, that being humane is is important. So you just have to keep walking it out no matter what's hap- what's happening around you. You know, sometimes you the, the winds are at your back and you're doing great. And sometimes you're in the storm. Doesn't change what your job is. My, my job doesn't change as a human being or as a civil rights lawyer because of the conditions. I, you know, when Barack Obama was president, I had the, you know, I had the, the pleasure and honor of, you know, being at the White House as a civil rights leader, right? I, you know, you get invited because various, you know, initiatives are happening or because you've, you know, asked for a meeting because you want the president to do this or that. And that's been standard across various administrations. And so I, you know, happened to be blessed to be heading an organization at a time that Barack Obama was president. And very often we were, you know, on the same page with the Obama administration about a whole series of issues. We co-counseled cases, you know, together with the Department of Justice, particularly in the voting rights space. You know, we knew we had an ear to them in asking them to to take seriously the issue of police violence against unarmed African-Americans. And Eric Holder was really playing a leadership role in Loretta Lynch and so forth. So there was partnership. But, you know, if you saw me in a meeting with the president, it always seemed like we were at odds because my job as a civil rights lawyer is always to try to push whoever is the president of the United States beyond wherever they are. That's my job. My job doesn't change because I deeply admire the president of the United States and I deeply admired Barack Obama. But that doesn't change the fact that if I'm in a room with Barack Obama and I'm Cheryl and Eiffel, president and director counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, my job is to push those who have power further than maybe even they want to go in expanding equality, opportunity, justice for the people that I represent. So my job doesn't change. Am I at the White House with President Trump? No. Do I want to be at the White House with President Trump? No. <laughs> this is purely an outside game, right? So, so maybe the tactics and the strategy and the position changes. But what I have to do, what my job is, doesn't change. So it almost doesn't matter, <laughs> you know, whether whether I'm guided by hope or not, right? Of, of course, I think you have to have hope. You have to believe in what you're doing. You have to. You don't, you're not fanciful, but you believe in what you're doing. You should, you should believe in, in whatever you undertake. I like winning. And so I, I, I start out with the belief that I'm going to win. But I'm also, I also know what my role is as a civil rights lawyer. And my role is always to be pushing. It's always to be trying to expand equality, expand opportunity, expand access, um, whatever are the circumstances of this country. I don't anticipate in my lifetime that we will be at Shangri-La where this country will be, you know, um, fully just and fully equal and um, 
where there will be access and opportunity for all. I don't anticipate that in my lifetime we'll get there. So that must mean there's more pushing to be done. And so long as there is some, that's my job. And therefore, whether the conditions are, are harsh or the conditions are favorable, I still have to do what I'm here to do. Sherilyn, thank you so much for taking time out of your extremely busy schedule to have this talk with us. And to our listeners, I hope you all and all of us here will remember to do our job, to identify what our jobs are and to find hope and resilience in doing them. This podcast was produced by the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Learn more about public interest lawyering at law.upenn.edu slash public service. Thanks for joining us.